This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Hello, I am Mark Borderstone, and welcome to The End of History, a monthly program presented by the Canterbury Socialist Society where we discuss the class struggle, contemporary unionism, economics and current affairs in order to promote working class history and socialist ideas as they apply to the 21st century. Tēnā koutou katoa, no mai hare mai ki the end of history, a radio show slash podcast brought to you by the Canterbury Socialist Society. I'm Shannon Burns, I'm an executive member of the Canterbury Socialist Society, and as ever, I'm very pleased to present this episode in which I chat with a special guest, play a couple of songs, and recommend a couple of resources. Just before we get stuck into things, the Canterbury Socialist Society, or the CSS, is of course a socialist organisation based in Ōtautahi Christchurch. The CSS presents regular educational and social events, publishes the biannual magazine The Commonweal, and is affiliated to the Aotearoa New Zealand Federation of Socialist Societies. You can visit socialistsocieties.org.nz to learn more about and join the CSS or another socialist society local to you. You can also send an email to canterburysocialistsociety at gmail.com and or head to your social media provider of choice. I'll have a little more to say about CSS activities and events at the end of this episode. Right now, it's my pleasure to introduce Tyler West. Tyler is an Ōtiputi, Dunedin-based activist and academic, and I really wanted to talk to Tyler at this specific moment because his area of interest is contemporary socialism, and contemporary socialist organisations in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Last year, Tyler actually conducted a survey of socialist organisations in Aotearoa, and I was keen to hear about where we stand as contemporary socialists, and to reiterate our task going forward, regardless of the ebbs and flows of parliamentary politics. There were a few glitches in our Zoom conversation, but I think I've successfully edited them out, so please enjoy my conversation with Tyler. Cool. So I'll just get you to start by introducing yourself, please. Yeah, my name is Tyler West. Um, I'm a Dunedin-based activist and um, I suppose academic. And I've been involved with the socialist left in one form or another for about 10 years, since about the end of high school. Mm-hmm. And um yeah, I, my research mostly focuses on uh, the radical left and radical right in New Zealand uh, across its political history. Yeah, it's not not a small topic. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's a lot larger than people give it credit for. Yeah, I bet. Uh, so tell me a little bit about how you came to be interested in this kind of stuff and also, you know, your activist background is that something that's always sort of been a part of your life or was there a bit of a moment for you? I don't know, you tell me. I think I'm, it's not hugely surprising that I, I guess, became interested in, in political activism. I, I read a lot of history as a kid and I, I remember even though we weren't really a kind of discuss politics or news around the table family, I, I do remember kind of like seeing East Timor and the war on terror and when I was a little bit older, the great financial crisis on TV and 
kind of being interested in that. And I also remember hearing stories from mum about uh, her time as a teenager during the um, Springbok tour protests in 1981 and also the Save Our Moana campaign um, down here just outside of Dunedin. And um, I think Sorry to cut you off. I don't know about that. Um, so there was a plan in the 70s under the Muldoon government to build an aluminum smelter out in Aramoana, which is a tiny little seaside town. Well, not town. It's, it's a village of a couple hundred people, about 30 minutes outside of Dunedin. It was a very bitterly divided Aramoana and nearby Port Chalmers, as well as the surrounding suburbs. Uh, and there was a huge campaign that ran right throughout the eight, uh, ran for a fair chunk of the 80s late 70s and 80s, to uh, prevent the smelter, which was eventually successful. Yeah, my mum my was involved in that campaign as a teenager. I've always had family out there. And um, I remember hearing a lot of stories about that campaign when I was a kid. Yeah, I'm, it's cool. I'm just like uh, recognising, just recently my sister works for Archives New Zealand and she recently like did a petition to get the photos of my then teenage mum being arrested on the Springbok tour, like released to us, which are, are really great. <laughs> um, so I feel like yeah, that, that's awesome. That, yeah, that's that's really cool. So you've been in Dunedin your whole life. Um, I actually grew up in Adelaide. My dad's side of the family are from Australia, and yeah, besides kind of seeing stuff on the news and hearing these family stories, it wasn't really that much that was around me as a kid. But when I got kind of towards my mid to late teens, I had a close friend who got me into punk and that got me into kind of leftist history. And that obviously kind of led to us going to protest together. And um, between that and my kind of long established nerdy habit for reading big books, I, I eventually kind of drifted to a, a bit of an ill-defined anarchism and in late, late in uh, more recent years, so something of a more Marxist approach. Yeah. I always, this is, you know, a total vibey thing, but I always connect Dunedin really strongly with anarchism and maybe it's because of like just knowing about Black Star books and stuff like that. I don't know, but I I always think of there being quite a strong anarchist kind of tradition in Dunedin that maybe I'm not so aware of in Christchurch. Yeah. Um, there's a great book by Toby Borman. Rabble Rousers and Merry Pranksters. And there's a little note in there where he mentions there are enough anarchists in Dunedin in the 80s that they had their own football team that would compete in local tournaments. That's really cool. <laughs> cool. So um, what was it? This is, I didn't say I'd ask you this, I, and I say that in literally every interview I do, um, but what was it initially about anarchism that you found you know, attractive or interesting and what has changed for you to become a little bit more sympathetic to, I guess, like Marxism proper or whatever? Um, I think anarchism kind of gave me the gave me the option, I suppose, of still recognizing a lot of uh, I guess individuality while still being committed to more of a of a collective process. And um I say it was ill defined because as I started engaging more with with the Marxist tradition, I, I realized that it wasn't just kind of, you know, the old Marxist-Leninist tradition, but that there were a whole bunch, there was a whole world of different traditions and intellectuals, and there's a lot of cross-pollination with anarchism. And so I've kind of drifted into something of a heterodox Marxism with, you know, a little, little bit of anarchism still thrown in 
or I guess an appreciation for both worlds. Yeah. Anarchism, well, the anarchists have good music and stuff, so, you know, got to keep one foot. But, <laughs> They, they they do. It was punk that originally drew, drew me in. <laughs> yeah, nice. Um, so can you tell me a bit about then, I guess, your activism? I'm interested to talk to you a bit. I guess um, some of the work I find really interesting that you do is your survey of sort of the left in New Zealand and the various organisations that are operating. I, I'm interested to talk about that soon, but I guess I want to start with your personal experience of some of those organisations what have you been involved um, in? So I guess towards the end of high school, start of university, I cut my teeth, so to speak, on a lot of campaigns that were obviously at that time against the national government under John Key uh, and also a number of international issues. And those led me to being involved with Black Star Books, which is a little anarchist community library and reading space in Dunedin that's been around for about 20 years. and. I kind of stuck around Black Star Books and was just involved in general protest politics down here for a few years. Uh, and then from, uh, would have to be around 2017, 2018 onwards, um, I've been on and off involved with the Otago Socialist Society in, in fits and starts, kind of drifting in and out between work and study and, and academic commitments. So yeah, I guess the two big affiliations I've had in the past, uh, the Otago Socialist Society more recently and Black Star Books before that. Yeah, cool. Thank you. Um, and so I've heard a wee bit from people, um, I'm thinking about Gareth most recently, about the Otago Socialist Society stuff, but I understand the whole things have been a bit fits and starty, but how's that stuff going now? Yeah, um, so it it had a bit of a false start when when the Canterbury Socialist Society was relatively young and the, the idea of a wider federation hadn't really come around yet. And then fast forward maybe a year or two, um, some more people and some of the people who were involved in its initial short run got together and decided to give it another shot. Um, so I've been on and off involved since it was refounded, which I think is about two years ago now. Don't quote me on that. Yeah, so I, I'm not particularly involved at the moment. Um, I'm, I'm not even a member right now. I consider myself more of a fellow traveler. Um, but I'm still, you know, I still go to the occasional event and do a lot of other organizing with, with people who are involved in the society. And is that mostly through uh, academic work or something else? I was fairly involved. Um, I, I was the chair of the Protect Otago Action Group down here. Um, which was founded in, I want to say, March or April, maybe May. Anyway, earlier this year uh, for a few months there, um, I was the chair and also the community representative. And the Protect Otago Action Group is a university-focused group that's fighting against the cuts that have been announced, not only at Otago University, but in institutions around the country. And um, through that, I've, you know, drifted in and out of being involved with some people who are with the Otago Socialist Society. And also, you know, if they put on a good talk or something, then I always try and go to it because they they do have a, a habit of um, bringing in very interesting speakers for their events. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the stuff that's been happening at specifically Otago University, but elsewhere. Do you want to just give a bit of a, an account of 
of what the issue is there for people. I'm sure people will kind of have it in the back of their minds, but maybe you could introduce things as you see them. Yeah, so a number of tertiary education institutions have been in fairly dire financial straits for a few years now, partly because of more long-term structural issues and also partly as a result of the impacts of the pandemic. And this year has turned out to be essentially the crunch year. Uh, Otago announced what was initially uh, an indeterminate number of job cuts. Um, it's now projected to be north of two to 300. And s- several dozen of those have happened. The pace has probably been slower than the higher-ups at the university had intended, I think. They, they wanted to have several hundred done by this point, but I believe there's been less than 100 cuts so far. And not long after it was announced that Otago would be cutting jobs, there were announcements of equally severe job cuts at both polytechnics and universities around the country, of which I, I guess the most severe outside of Otago are at Victoria and at Massey. So the Protect Otago group was founded to fight against that. And there's also a group called uh, Students Against Cuts at both Victoria and Massey Universities. And they um, linked up with us or we linked up with them. And while there's not an official national body, there's a lot of coordination between the different universities now. Yeah, okay, cool. That's probably a really good um, transition as well because I'm interested to hear about your relationship with the university and your academic work. So maybe I, I know a little bit about your master's, but I'd like to hear more about it and, you know, what you're working on now. Yeah, so um, my main interest since, I guess, since I started postgrad has been the history and especially the recent history of the socialist left as well as labour and social movements in New Zealand. My master's thesis after a bit of umming and awing, uh, wound up being uh, about the socialist left during the Clark government, the, the fifth Labour government in the 2000s, where I looked at both uh, a handful of organisations, namely Socialist Worker, the International Socialist Organisation, the Workers' Party, and uh, the anarchist scene in Wellington, uh, as well as some... Uh, more general movements. So I also looked at the labor movement, the anti-war movement, and the anti-globalization movement. Since then, I have been kind of on and off writing and and doing the occasional kind of research project about the socialist left. And in terms of what I do in, in looking at kind of left-wing politics in New Zealand, most recently I surveyed all of the Uh, socialist organizations that I could find and publish those results as well as kind of my thoughts on what they might mean and what the composition of of the socialist left is today in in two separate pieces last year. And so why did you think that was a useful thing to do? Well, I basically remembered when I first got involved in these sorts of politics and I just had absolutely no idea what was around. Yeah. It was really hard to get the feel for all of the different organizations, what they stood for, uh, what what their history is, what their relations with each other were like. And I think 
looking at specifically the socialist groups is helpful because each one of those organizations has their own positions on and relationship to pretty much all of the wider progressive movements of, of, of social movements and the labor movement in New Zealand. So, you know, any given socialist organization may have some people who are involved in, uh, in, in decolonial politics, may be involved in feminist politics or environmental politics or the labor movement um, or any number of different social or labor movements around the country. And they really prove to be a useful way at looking at the meeting point of all those different movements. Yeah. 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 I totally agree. I, I've, I still find it pretty um, sort of overwhelming at times to just sort of think about like what exists politically on the left, just in our country, let alone looking further afield, but it can be quite a daunting kind of state of affairs for new people entering into the left. So I, I totally see what you're saying. How would you describe the left currently or the socialist left in Aotearoa? So that's, it's kind of a difficult question, really. So I made attempts to create this overall map of the socialist left in New Zealand on a few occasions before I kind of settled on my current model, which is sending out these surveys. Last year was the first one, but I'm imagining probably every maybe two to three years to give enough time for things to develop. And this is obviously voluntary. Any organization can choose whether to respond to me or not. I had decent enough responses, probably a quarter to a third of the surveys I sent out were responded to. But I also received a lot of no responses and in a couple cases, pointed refusals to participate. Oh, really? Um, were you expecting yeah. that? Uh, I kind of was expecting probably some people to not really be that interested in participating just as um, a result of both the political divisions that exist on the left and also probably a, a warranted skepticism of people asking these kinds of questions, you know, being seen as kind of sniffing around, you know, oh. gathering and in, gathering intel. <laughs> um, I don't think many people these days who are involved in, in, in the socialist left would remember, but there's a guy who lives in the States now. He's from Christchurch, Trevor Luden, who used to run something called KiWiki, which was a database of uh, left-wing individuals and organizations in New Zealand. And even though I think most people don't really remember him particularly or KiWiki particularly, I think there's something of a feeling that there are people and organizations out there who are very hostile to socialist and progressive politics and do do that sort of thing. So I, I wasn't that surprised. One of the organizations, which I won't name, I, I wasn't really surprised at all. Um, yeah. <laughs> I kind of expected them to be a bit hostile. So, And it was only two out of about two dozen organizations. Oh, well, that's good. So when we talk about you doing this survey, obviously we're talking about that in the kind of generic sense. It's like a broad account of the landscape of, you know, the socialist left in Aotearoa, but you actually sent questionnaires. Yes, I did, what, yeah. What were you asking? So what I was uh, it, it kind of is, was split up a little bit. Um, I did want to know the number of active people. I did not publish that in the results. I only wanted to know that so I could get 
a rough idea of what combined membership of all the different groups is. So I could have something of a ballpark idea of how many people are involved actively as kind of the the core membership of the socialist left, as it were. But I also asked things about, uh, you know, the basic details of the history of the organization, what the organization's kind of primary activities were, uh, what publications they had, and, and what they thought about those publications. And in in a few cases, just depending on the organization, I had some kind of specific questions, depending on that organization's kind of history, uh, you know, about their activity, about what the organization is, just so that I could have that kind of clarifying information and we'll be able to present it relatively neutrally, um, at least in terms of the survey side of things. Yeah, cool. So did you find that there was a particular kind of organization that exists in Aotearoa or a lack of a particular kind? Like what sort of observations were you able to make based on your survey? So there are a lot of similarities to other countries insofar as I'm aware of you know, the the particulars of other countries. One thing I was able to note out of the survey itself is that the the biggest shift over probably the last 20 years or so um, hasn't really been in membership per se. I I think the overall membership from, you know, say the mid-2000s to today has increased a little bit. But my, my guess is that it went from a ballpark of somewhere in the vicinity of maybe 100 to 150 people to maybe a little over 200 people who are kind of the core membership, not including supporters, because that's just something that's much more difficult to try and assess. But the other um, really big change over the last couple decades that I was able to find is that I, I think, at least based on my own assessment, that there is something of a local tradition that's starting to emerge and i kind of wound up camping these or putting these three groups these organizations into three very broad camps um one's the anarchists one is the trotskyists and one is something that i call the pluralists Mm -hmm. now the anarchists have been around for a while um they kind of had their heyday in the 90s and 2000s and there are a few projects that are still around that have been around for a while, notably Black Star Books in Dunedin and the Freedom Shop in Wellington, as well as some newer initiatives. But by and large, the anarchist scene is much smaller than it was about 20 years ago. The Trotskyists are a bit of a similar story. They are pretty much entirely comprised of an older cohort of organizations, and a few of them are still fairly prominent. Among the socialist left, you still see them at demonstrations a lot. They still have members who hold fairly key positions in various campaigns. And, you know, in terms of the world of socialist publishing, they're still fairly prominent. But the the interesting one to me is this thing that I call the pluralist organizations. In, in um, the, the sort of socialist societies that um, the CSS belongs to kind of fall into that camp. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So I, I kind of delineate those as either having just an indeterminate political character or are attempting to forge their own new tendency that has a respect and recognition for local conditions 
or are deliberately pursuing a kind of pluralistic approach to these ideological questions, which actually welcomes all sorts of different tendencies and approaches on a more basic kind of mutually agreed upon base principles. Of the the middle of those three, I would put Organize Aotearoa, which uh, rose to a brief prominence in the late 2010s, immediately preceding the pandemic, and remains a fairly important faction of the socialist left. And I think their attempts to form something that they call decolonial communism kind of mirror this idea of forging a new tendency, a kind Mm -hmm. of taking what exists in New Zealand, people who have previously been affiliated with various tendencies, and trying to actively create something that accounts for the unique conditions of New Zealand. While the Federation, I think, has a much more of this deliberate pluralist approach where there are kind of these base principles, these kind of shared ideas about, you know, the the basics of what socialism is and why a socialist organization would exist. And beyond that, there is a great deal of encouragement for people of various tendencies to kind of be in, you know, debate and discussion with each other about what that would necessarily mean in New Zealand. Yeah. It's super interesting to hear this sort of account of of what's happening sometimes. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I I just keep up with what's going on in the Federation. <laughs> and so it's really nice to have someone who's keeping an eye on things more broadly. <laughs> um, so do you think it could be from the survey or or other kind of, I guess, work that you've done around the socialist left in New Zealand? But is there anything that does like particularly well and I and so I just mean like are there are there things that certain organizations do that make them more successful or do you see like I don't know uh, similar sort of challenges coming up for organizations across the country? So I think there are definitely long-term problems to be dealt with in terms of what groups do well and how they do well, it's a bit hard to predict projecting forward because partly because some of the most successful periods for the socialist left of the particular organizations are now 50, 70, or even 100 plus years in the rearview mirror. And the specific conditions in which they were able to grow, to, to actually exert some real political influence and power in the country are very different to the conditions of the last even 40 years or so. And and those conditions are, of course, changing very rapidly today with things like climate change, intense economic disruption as a result of globalization, and, of course, uh, experiencing a global pandemic that really is only rivaled by the Spanish flu or, earlier than that, the Russian flu in, in the 1890s in terms of having a comparable experience globally. In terms of challenges, there are some specific events as well as more long-term trends that I think can at least be learned from. One thing that came up when I was doing my master's thesis and has continued to be this pressing question for me going forward um, was not really an event, but a trend in the early 1990s where in the space of just a few years, about three or four years at most, the four largest organizations on the socialist left all experienced at the same time a a profound and rapid decline 
the Socialist Unity Party and the Workers' Communist League fell apart within about a year of each other. The rapid reorganization and splits in the Communist Party, which led to the foundation of Socialist Worker, um, saw them contract finally to about 50 to 100 members, where, uh, where, you know, once many decades prior, they had had 2,000 or possibly even more members. And the decline and reorganization of the Socialist Action League into the Communist League saw it also into um, a, a thus far continuous decline. So there's this question of how that happened. And I think a big part of the answer is not only the political question. I mean, these organizations all aligned themselves with forces internationally that underwent rapid changes. For example, you know, Socialist Unity Party was pro-Moscow and then the wall fell and the, the Soviet Union split up. The Workers' Communist League was pro-China, but then Tiananmen Square happened, and also the, the the market reforms occurred, and so on and so forth. But at the same time, I think it was more to do with the fact that these organizations had built up a certain way of organizing based on conditions which were rapidly ceasing to exist, especially regarding unions. Right. Um, it was, I think, a matter of those organizations not really being able to rapidly move with the changing times the changing social and economic conditions and uh, adapting themselves to what would become the post-Cold War world. Another matter which has some precedent is having multiple countervailing factors occurring all at once. This happened to the Communist Party in the 1950s and 60s when they had to deal with the defeat of the labor movement after the 51 genocide lockout, as well as unrest within the membership over the leadership and direction of the party, also the inability to maintain unity over key international questions like the Soviet suppression of the uprisings in Hungary in 1956 and Czechoslovakia in 1968, and the Sino-Soviet split in the 60s. And all of this really came together to generate a period of membership exodus and precipitate the damaging split of what would become the Socialist Unity Party in 1966. And after that, the Communist Party simply never recovered. Um, they went from over 2,000 members in the late 1940s, having some real national influence, especially in the union movement, to within a decade or two, 400 or less members at best. And, and that decline continued until eventually they reorganized into Socialist Worker. And, you know, in 2012, Socialist Worker ceased to exist as well. And that legacy kind of came to an end. The other thing that comes up, um, and I think this has been an issue since the 2000s, at least publicly, but it's probably been an issue for a much longer time, is the matter of you know abuse between members of organizations as well as kind of on the left generally and this need for a robust or at the very least a clearly defined system to address matters of abuse by members. That has come up a number of times in fairly high-profile instances over the last 20 or so years. Um, there are some groups that can directly trace their decline to such instances of just not being able to figure out a good way to address these matters. Yeah. Mercifully, you know, there haven't been any cases in New Zealand as extreme as some of the notable political cults that have emerged from the left over the years looking at, organiz at organizations like the Workers' Institute in Britain, 
the United Red Army in Japan, or more recently, the Black Hammer Organization in the USA. But these are still real problems that persist and need to continue to be addressed here in New Zealand, even if they haven't um, reached that extreme end of, of where those problems can lead. Uh, it's still, you know, a matter that needs to be kind of continually addressed and, and have some kind of, as I said, defined way of responding to it and, and system in place for dealing with it. Definitely when I um, yeah. was sort of first becoming involved in socialist organisations proper, maybe about 10 years ago or so, I know that some of these instances of um, abuse within organisations were exactly what was just kind of becoming really significant in those organisations. So it was a weird time to get involved. So, yeah, I hear what you're saying. And if I might say, I, I think this is somewhere where, you know, that kind of critical engagement with other social movements can be really positive. Um, especially, you know, the feminist movement as well as the decolonial movement. There are definitely in terms of how organizations are put together and how organizing is done that can learn a lot and, and would benefit greatly from a kind of mutual understanding with some of the other social movements to which socialism has had both a positive and also an antagonistic relationship over the last, you know, 100 or so years. Totally. So I'm wondering... If we start wrapping stuff up now, but can you tell me what you would say to people? You know, you said part of the impetus for the survey was to give people who were maybe interested in the scene um, a sense of, of what there is out there and where to start. What would you say to people who are kind of interested in what's happening in the socialist left in New Zealand? And I guess. As a related question, we've just had an election, you know, elections are, uh, matter to varying degrees to various people on the socialist left, but do you think that's at all significant um, for the way that the socialist left organises going forward, at least short term? So I, I guess the first bit, well, I can't not do a little bit of self-promo and say that you should read the survey. It took several months to put together, and I'm quite happy with it. Yeah. Um, there's <laughs> How can also on, on, access it. Yeah. So I've got a blog called Notes South from Nowhere. Um, you'll be able to find it on there, and also links to either stuff that I've written is directly on there, or there's links to stuff that I've written or been involved with as well. So there's that. I've also got a pretty extensive reading guide on the blog. So there's a lot of what has been published, not only about, you know, the, the socialist and the anarchist scenes, but all sorts of social history of New Zealand, you know, uh, Māori decolonial politics, uh, women's liberation history, gender and sexual politics, um, you know, labour history, just, just all sorts is there. So I, I think I've done a pretty good survey of also the kind of literature that's out there um, the other thing is, honestly, to just track down and chat to some older activists who are still around. There are people who go way back to the 70s or even the 60s who are still kicking and still doing stuff. And, you know, obviously not all of them are going to want to sit down and talk with a random, but, I mean, <laughs> I think there are plenty of people who would be happy to sit down with a couple and discuss campaigns past. And I think it can be really um, worthwhile and rewarding just 
having a conversation with people who have been at this for so long and who have still, you know, found reasons to hope and keep faith. Mm. Um, so on, on the election, I think, I guess what I would say is that the last time we transitioned from a centrist Labour government to a centre-right national government was in 2008. And while people are going to argue that, you know, this, this government is substantively more right-wing, both socially and economically, I mean, I would note that, you know, immediately prior to the 2008 ascension of the King English government was the very racially charged 2005 election in which nationals scraped very close to getting in by stoking some bitterly racist anti-Maldi sentiment alongside a very conservative free market agenda. And Brash, who, who led the National Party in that election, is a fairly key and influential figure in the circles that wound up pushing those politics back to the center stage in this election cycle. So I think there are both lessons that we can adapt from that period from kind of the mid-2000s to the mid-2010s, as well as all sorts of other times in, in New Zealand history, to, and, and lessons that can be learned and applied today. And also there's reason to think that just because there's been a parliamentary turn to the right, that doesn't necessarily mean that that means that socialist ideas or at least progressive ideas are suddenly, you know, completely au fait and out the window in New Zealand. You know, during the 2000s and the 2010s protest activity, granted it wasn't quite usually as radical or as intense as it had been in previous eras, but there were plenty of large mass movements and some of them did win. So I don't think that having this new coalition, which Albia is quite right wing and does have some fairly worrying plans for anyone who, you know, cares deeply about about the various kind of serious social issues that confront the people who live in these islands. I don't think that's a reason in and of itself to despair and to think that, you know, it's time to throw in the towel because New Zealand has kind of incurably swung to the right. I I think that even though it can be overstated or understated. It can be misunderstood and people can kind of pin kind of unreasonable hopes to it. There is still legitimate power in the streets. And there is reason to think that if this government, even if it does wind up including New Zealand first and being a bit more chaotic and unable to fulfill its agenda, even if it, it does go through with a lot of its more extensive policy proposals, both in the economy and, and in the social world, there's no reason to think that there won't be, you know, a great deal of uproar about that. And it's not like people are just going to take changes that will materially make their lives worse lying down. I yeah. think there is a reason to hope that, you know, if the government goes ahead with, you know, severe public service cuts or the sale of public assets, and especially if they go forward with their quite sweeping changes in race relations all the way up to, you know, making constitutional changes. Yeah. You know, I, I think there will be a great deal of people who won't just take that lying down and accept it. And it will be on the socialist left to come up with a framework, you know, a, a real program of saying not only can we stop this and just go back to the way it was before, but we can you know, we can go beyond this and, and make the lives of people in these islands better. Yeah, definitely. Well said. Um, Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> that's about it that 
uh, in terms of questions that I have for you. Is there anything else that you would like to say or add? Yeah, there are some projects I guess I, I've, I've been involved with that I'd like to shout out while I have the opportunity. Please do. They're all, they're all kind of related to, I guess, the, the preservation. They're all kind of preservation projects on the history of the radical and activist left. There is a online archive I run called the Radar Project, which stands for Radical Aotearoa Digital Archive um, that I've run for a few years now. I haven't updated it in a while, but it is a collection of ephemera from organizations and campaigns past in New Zealand. Um, and there are, I think, a couple hundred items on it. I think somewhere in the vicinity of 250. So I always, you know, if, if you're interested, I, I am always pleased as punch when people, you know, find the archive and and they find a use for these old leaflets and journals and periodicals and whatnot. I'm also a committee member of something called New Zealand's Road to Socialism, an oral history project, which seeks to interview kind of veteran activists who were involved with or kind of organized around the socialist movement in New Zealand over the years. And the last of the three is that I'm the national outreach coordinator for a project in Auckland called the Mangarei Socialist Library and Research Project, which is trying to make available a very considerable collection of radical movement literature to the public in the form of uh, an active community library, um, with an eye especially towards researchers in the wider progressive movement. And yeah, if, if any of those interest the listeners, you know, I'll, I'll yap their ears off for ages and also point them <laughs> in the direction of of people who are involved in those projects who can, you know, talk to them about how to get involved. And all, all you need to do is really contact me via that blog. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tyler. I've really enjoyed talking to you. And um, I think we've done particularly well given technological difficulties. So I think we can be doubly proud of ourselves. Last question. What is your song? Please, can you introduce it? Yeah, so I had a bit of a thought about this because I wanted to do something themed and, and relevant. And I, I kind of gave up on that and just decided that, well, I'm a Halloween person by <laughs> nature. I'm a bit of a goth and a metalhead and a horror hound. And uh, it is the season, so I, I figured a good classic spooky tune would be good. And I went with the ministry sale from the mid to late 80s, Every Day is Like Halloween. Beautiful.
That was the 1987 song Every Day Is Like Halloween by the American band Ministry. And my guest Tyler West selected that song for you. Thank you so much, Tyler. On now to some resource reviews slash recommendations. And let's kick things off with the 2023 film El Conde, or The Count, directed by the Chilean filmmaker Pablo Larraín. For the most part, El Conde is set in present-day Chile, but the film starts in the late 18th century in France. Against the backdrop of the French Revolution, a royalist soldier, Claude Pinoche, is discovered to be a vampire. Pinoche quickly fakes his own death and flees France, dedicating the next centuries of his life to the suppression of revolutionary action the world over. In the 1930s, Pinoche finds himself in Chile, you can probably sense where this is headed, and under the name Augusto Pinochet, he rises through the ranks of the Chilean army, stages the 1973 Chilean military coup, and you probably know the rest. Or do you? Feeling the heat from various authorities, the Augusto Pinochet, Claude Pinoche of Alconde, fakes his own death, retires to a remote ranch, and this is really where the film picks up. If it's not already clear, Alconde is a work of comedy horror. Think Wes Anderson meets Hannibal Lecter. In terms of themes, Alconde is really about the parasitism of the ruling class and ruling class institutions, including the church. The film is a little bit cringy at times, but its main twist makes it well worth the watch. Three and a half red stars. Next up, it's the 2023 novel Hungry Ghosts, written by the Trinidadian author Kevin Jared Hossein, who incidentally I recently saw in conversation with Julie Hill as part of the Word Christchurch Festival 2023. Anyway, set in colonial Trinidad in the 1940s, Hungry Ghosts is based around the Saroops, Father Hans, Mother Shweta and son Krishna. And the Saroops are an impoverished Hindu family living in a rural slum known as the Barracks. They are an Indo-Trinidadian family descended from indentured Indian labourers brought to Trinidad following the, and I'm using air quotes here, abolition of slavery in directly governed British colonies. In terms of its plot, Hungry Ghosts is a little bit murder mystery, but mostly the novel digs into the effects of abject poverty on intimate relationships. While the more material, political economics of colonisation and class politics are there throughout, Hungry Ghosts is all about the emotional and psychological toll of exploitation and oppression, which is to say that it's about personal relationships that are made political. Much like Arundhati Roy's 1997 novel, The God of Small Things, which is another favourite of mine, Hungry Ghosts gives flesh to issues like the lack of privacy that comes from enforced communalism, the sense of shame that comes from simply not having enough. The novel is hard to read at times. There are occasional instances of animal cruelty, and of course it's hard to read about poverty generally, but again, well worth it. Four and a half red stars. It's time now for another song, and I'm going to change the vibe right up. So here's Smoko by the Australian punk rock band The Chats. Enjoy. One, two, three, four. Mm-hmm. 
That was the 2017 song Smoko by the Australian punk rock band The Chats, and that's about this episode done. Just a few words about Canterbury Socialist Society events before I sign off. This episode is airing on Monday the 23rd of October, 2023, Labour Day. And if you're listening to the original airing of this episode, that means that I and other members of the CSS Executive and other Socialist Society members are probably happily conked out after spending the last three days at the first ever Aotearoa New Zealand Federation of Socialist Societies conference right here in Ōtautahi. I intend to say more about the conference in the next episode of The End of History. I'll either have recordings or reflections to share, but right now I just want to say keep an eye out on the NZFSS website, socialistsocieties.org.nz, Look for the Canterbury Socialist Society on Facebook or another social. There's plenty of content coming out right now and this is a great time to get involved as we've just rolled over into a new AGM year. Remember that if you have any questions at all, you can send an email to canterburysocialistsociety at gmail.com. In terms of the CSS specifically, the next event is scheduled for the 8th of November. Details to come. And I'm also excited to say that plans are underway for a very merry Quizmas event in December, so I'll be reprising my role as quiz mistress. We're always keen to see new people come along to our events, and if you already come, maybe bring someone new. Anyway, that is it for this episode. Until next time, kakite anō. Thank you for listening. And if you want to find out more, you can find us on Facebook as the Canterbury Socialist Society or visit our website at www.canterburysocialistsociety.org.nz. Thank you, and until next time, take care.